Well, good morning. We're going to talk about approaching God this morning. And as we do, uh, I want to deal with a story. Uh, anytime I've ever asked, been asked to come to children and uh, just answer questions, let kids ask questions, it seems like this question always comes up. And like, this is the big story, the big event in the Bible that people always want to know, why did God do that? Kids are all, I, this happened about five or six times. I'd go, you can ask any question about the Bible that you want. And there's always some kid who's really studied Scripture and who knows all the stories, and he asked this question. Now, to be truthful, half of you are going to hear this. You go, I've never even heard that story. That's because we don't preach on I've never preached on this subject, okay? It's like the story that I don't want to preach on. Uh, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, but it's the one that kids always ask. And so I thought since we have the children in here this morning, and since they are the one usually asking this question, we're just going to jump in and deal with 2 Samuel chapter 6 and how we approach God, approaching God. You know, we live in a culture today where uh, statistics tell us that between 90 and 95% of Americans believe in God. About 70%, somewhere between 65 and 70%, believe that there is a theistic God who has a place or a part in the world that we live. In other words, uh, he is transcendent. He is involved in some manner of speaking in the world. About a third of Americans don't believe that, that, that he is. But about two-thirds do. And so it really uh, has a lot to do with the way that we approach God. Now, some people approach God in this matter. You know, I, I love God because he makes life better. He makes it better. He's like whipped cream. I mean, he just makes it better. And I like that God, the God of much, the God of making my life better, helping me out, making me prosper. I like that God, and that's the one I worship. And let me say, God does make life better, but that's just a small portion of who he is. And if you think that's exclusively who he is, you've missed him. And when things don't get better, you have serious doubts because your God didn't come through. And if that's all your God is, then really it's more of an idol that you've made up in your mind. That's a piece of God. It's a characteristic of God, but it's not the whole God. It's far from it. Some believe, you know what? I'll keep my worship controlled and very traditional. I, I want it to be, all be in control. And when I come and I worship, I'm very quiet. I don't say anything. And I don't appreciate these people who say amen, these people who sing too loud. And those people that raise my, their hands drive me crazy. And I, I, that's not the God I worship. And God is in a box. And you made a box for God, and he's supposed to stay in there. And when we get outside of that approach, you are very uncomfortable. And I'm saying you're missing a big chunk of him. Some say, well, you know, I know there's a God, and I know he's good, um, but I'm going to need to do some things with him. You know, to get my salvation, I, I'm going to need to do good, some good things so he'll accept me and so he'll help me. So God plus me, that's what we're talking about. And some people would say, you know what, I just don't think he's fair. I don't think he's helpful. I don't, I don't think he's distant at best. And this is something I'm going to have to do myself. A lot of people take that approach today. There may be a God, but what does he have to do with us? And he's certainly not helping me, and he's certainly not good. I, look at all the evil in the world. And then there's who God really is. He's holy, he's good, and he's mysterious. God is holy. He's pure. He's righteous. And he's good. And he's mysterious. We, we can't put him in a box. 
We can't say, this is what God always has to do it like this, and, and God doesn't like it when we get out there and, and the fringes, and, and some people, they, I don't think they're right because of the way they worship and the way that they respond, and we kind of have a little box. But the truth be told, God is so much bigger than we could ever understand. And his ways are not our ways. And he does things constantly throughout Scripture that we go, oh man, I don't like it when he does that. that, that I don't think that's my God. I don't think, I don't think God should do that. that. Matter of fact, sometimes people say, I, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament God person myself. I like that New Testament Jesus. That's my God. The Old Testament, bad. New Testament, good. I got bad news for you. It's the same God. I'm the Lord thy God. I change not. It's the same God. It's kind of like you saying, I loved my son when he was a baby and a toddler, but now he's a teenager, and this is my son. That's not my son. No, it's still your son, even if he's a teenager. He's still yours, okay? So you don't get to separate them in two, two different categories, all right? So the God of all of history, he's the same. I am the Lord thy God. I change not. He's talking about his character. And so when we read this story, we're going to read a portion here, and it's going to go, bam, and you're going to go, I don't like that. Whew, that does not seem right. God should not do things like that because he doesn't fit within your image. The truth of it is most Americans have developed a concept of God that they worship that's not necessarily biblical, the God that they want him to be. And let me say this, if God always agrees with what you're thinking, it's not God, it's you. That's how you know. If there's not sometimes where you go, whoa, I don't like that, then you're just worshiping your own mental image of God. Sometimes he's going to say and do things that you're not going to agree with, and that's one of the reasons you know he's God. Okay? Now, you might be wondering, what is this? This is the Ark of the Covenant. A lot of people have been looking for it, and I found it. Um, not really. This is obviously a cheap imitation. But, uh, and by the way, we still don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. We still don't know if it's buried way beneath Jerusalem. My wife and I were in Israel a couple of years ago. We still have no idea where it is. Uh, but they knew where it was in 2 Samuel. Uh, and matter of fact... God had the people of Israel, had Moses specifically, give orders to have this built. And uh, this was to represent, this was to be where the presence of God was to reside. It was believed by the Israelites the presence of God reside here. And we know, of course, when Jesus came, Jesus, God within us, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, the presence of God came to be and dwell with us. But the Israelites believed, and, and rightly so, <clears throat> when God told them, look, I want you to build this holy ark the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to build it in a certain manner, a certain way, with gold, and I want to put the cherubim on the top, and this will be sort of the throne of God, of the presence of God, and I want you to take it wherever you go, and there'll be a special tent, a special place that it's placed for worship, and there's a special way for it to be handled. You're supposed to have priests on both ends, on all four ends, and they will carry it over their shoulders. And before they do that, they will consecrate themselves and make themselves cleanse. And then they will carry it in the right manner. There will be sacrifices offered before the Lord thy God. And so there was a process. And he said, do this and do it this way because I am holy. And this is a holy place. This is a holy presence. And if you don't do that, there's going to be severe consequences. Now, within the ark, 
Uh, we're not going to talk about a lot about this, but does anybody know what was in the ark? Any boys and girls, what was in the ark? Very good, the Ten Commandments. Great job. Uh, also, later on, apparently, uh, the rod of Aaron was added and a pot of gold manna was there. But we know the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm going to open it up. You'd get, normally, you'd get killed if this was the real thing. But um, the, as, as this young man said, the, the, the Ten Commandments. You know what this is also called? You know what it's referred to in the Old Testament? The word starts with T, the testimony of God. The testimony What's Christ? Christ is the testimony of God, the Word of God. So we see this, and we know that it is to be the the holy peace, the holy presence of God. And God is teaching the nation of Israel to be respectful and to revere and to have honor and reverence. And so, uh, but what happened, the, the, the nation of Israel at one point, um, they were going to battle and they kept getting beat and they thought, okay, let's go get the ark and let's put it out in the front and it'll kind of operate. Uh, I don't know if they thought it was going to be a good luck charm or a terminator or what it was going to be. And so they took off with it and, and because they had been disobedient of God, because God had already exercised judgment, the ark was stolen. It was taken by the Philistines who were their kind of ark enemies, so to speak. And so they took it, but then it didn't go well for them. They put it in their temple before Dagon and it kept every night they'd come in and the head of Dagon would be falling down and cracked and just wasn't going well for them. And then diseases started breaking out and they go, get this thing out of here. They took it to another city. That happened. And finally, they said, you know what? Let's put this, build a new cart. Let's put this thing on that cart and put some oxen and just send it out and see if it goes back to Israel. And sure enough, it did. And so it came to a, a border city there and it resided there for a while. And so we pick up and while um, Saul is king, he pretty much just ignores it, forgets, forgets about it being there. But then we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David, Saul has died, David's made king. He's affirmed by the people, he's affirmed by the leadership, and he is made king. Not only was he made king in chapter 5, but we also in chapter 5, he goes to Jerusalem and um, he overtakes Jerusalem. The Jebusites at that time on Jerusalem, it wasn't part of the nation of Israel, uh, but it was a key city. It was a city up on a hill. I remember driving to it two years ago up a bus and we're just going up, 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 up. And I'm thinking, wow. And that was a tremendous military advantage to be up on a hill at that time. Even is now, but then it was a tremendous advantage. And they had an ample supply of water. So it was just a key city. And so David takes Jerusalem. So he now has Jerusalem and he's going to make it kind of the city, the capital city for the, for the nation of Israel. And not only that, he goes and he battles the Philistines. They, they find out David's in charge now. And so they come out against him. He, he beats them not once but twice and he thoroughly defeats the Philistines. It's been a good season. Chapter 5. King got a new city, the most strategic city in all the area. And I beat all, I beat all my enemies here. I've done beat my rivals here. I'm, I'm in good shape at this point. It's a great season. You ever had a great season like that? You know what usually happens after you have a great season? You have one that's not quite as great, okay? So David is flying high, and we find ourselves here in chapter 6, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, read along with me as we look at 2 Samuel, chapter 6. And David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. We talked about that a while ago. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab 
which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. And with the ark of God, and ark went, excuse me, and Ohio went before the ark. So, Abinadab, this has been hanging out at his house for quite a while. His boys have grown up seeing the ark. They were told, never touch that, okay? We are not to touch it's holy. It's really, it, it, would, it, it would kill you. The holiness and the presence of God would kill you if you touch it. Don't touch it. But after a while, it probably came kind of like one of those big Bibles you have on your coffee table. You know, your kids have seen it. Oh, yeah, they're the big Bible. Yeah. You know, and it's just kind of a fixture there. And they, they stayed away from it, but they noticed it. But familiarity kind of sometimes will cause us to take things rather lightly and not quite as precious as we should. And so they've grown up with it. They're very familiar with it. They've looked at it. They've studied it. And nothing's ever happened with it. And now it's time to move it. So dad says, boys, let's get that thing up and let's take it on. David, King David's coming. He wants it. So they did. And by the way, they would have known if they're Levites, if, and if Benadab is a priest, they knew exactly how it was supposed to be handled. They knew that priest, to take four priests, put it on your shoulder. You're supposed to consecrate yourself, make yourself ready, cleanse yourself, and then put it on your shoulder and carry it. Okay? But you know what? That requires a whole lot more effort. What if we just get a cart and have that big oxen pull it? That'll be a lot easier. Matter of fact, shoot, that's what the Philistines did. So they did that. They built a new, they built a new cart, and they put it on there, and they got the oxen. And, and so Ohio, he's not holding. He's out here walking in front like he's somebody. And then Uzzah, must have been the younger brother, is back here walking behind it, kind of beside it. And they're going through that process. So now this is the antithesis of what God asked. They're treating it lightly. They're not, they're not following the instructions that God gave, and they're doing it the way they want to do it. They're approaching God the way they want to approach him. They're handling the presence of God the way they want to do it. The Bible continues here in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel was celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They used lots of instruments back then. And, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his sin, and he died there beside the ark of God. What? Oh my goodness, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is why I don't like Old Testament God. This is exactly what, I've been saying this for years, you know, that this capricious God who's going to strike people when all he was trying to do was be helpful. No, the truth of it is, is God's holiness is so much bigger and greater than our convenience and our concept. We think that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. Hey, God's not about fair. He's about holiness and righteousness. And he is good. But there's a line to cross. Here's the thing about it. You realize they've done nothing right at this point. They haven't done anything that he's asked up to this point. They haven't consecrated themselves. They haven't prepared themselves. They're not carrying it correctly. Matter of fact, they're carrying it the same way the pagans were having it carried. And finally, there's only one thing they hadn't done. They hadn't touched it. If God doesn't do this, this makes a mockery of him. If he says, this is the presbyte, if he says, and if you touch this, you shall die. What does that mean? 
God doesn't keep his word. We just don't like that image. We don't like that picture. We want God to do what we want God to do, and we want him to play nice. Now, I want to give you an illustration here. Uh, matter of fact, there's a, a gentleman in our church who, matter of fact, he just had open start heart surgery this past Monday. His name is Monty Lawless, and he's a judge. He's a, uh, a local judge here. And uh, sw- this is like one of the sweetest men in our whole church. I mean, just so kind and sweet and gentle. And if you know him, you like him. And uh, he's in one of our Sunday school classes. Sometimes he teaches. He's in our neighborhood. And he's just been so sweet to me and my family. And I just love him to death. And every time you talk to him, he's just the kindest guy. But you know what would be wrong and stupid of me to presume? Let me say this right. But before I do this illustration, I want to just say something publicly. I don't drink, okay? I don't drink at all, okay? So I'm just using this for illustration purposes for those of you who will get disturbed, all right? Let's say that after, after, I, after today, after this gets through, I've talked with a few people who have completely driven me crazy. Everybody's on me. I'm listening to all this, and I'm just driven to drink. And so... I go and I get something to drink, I get some alcohol, and I drink too much, and I'm driving home, and I I have an accident, and I run to a car, and I kill someone. If I went to Monty, and I'm standing before court, and he's in the act of a judge, which he is, and I go, Monty, you know me, I I didn't mean to do that, and I mean, it's just one time. You know me, I'm a good guy, I just need you to be nice, sweet Monty to me. And he goes, okay, you're out, (laughs) You, you can go on. Would he be a good judge? Would you say, that's a good judge because people he likes and are nice, he lets them go. No, you wouldn't say. He said, you would say, no, he's not a good judge and he is not doing what he's supposed to do. He is a bad judge. He didn't know how to stand up for what's right. That's the picture we're looking at. God is a loving and caring and gracious God. But he's also a good God and a righteous judge. It's not like you get to have one and not the other. It's not like I can say, I just want nice money. I don't want judge money. No, you get him all. And that doesn't even begin to mean that you understand it all. There's mystery involved in who he is. And that's exactly what he is demonstrating here. That he is good, but he is righteous. And there are lines that when they're crossed, because of his word and because of who he said he is, that that there's a great penalty and a great cost. And that's exactly what happens to Uzzah. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David is angry at God and he's mad at himself because David knew better. David in his haste, David saying, things are going my way, man. I mean, look what happened. I'm king. I've taken Jerusalem. I've defeated the Philistines. I'm bringing the ark in here. This will be great politically. This will make worship. And he's praising God. He's saying, this is great. I love this good God. He's the self-improvement God. He's made my life better. It's a good thing. And then, boom, God strikes someone dead. Hey, that's not what I was looking for, God. That wasn't what I was thinking. It's, It's an immature perspective, to be honest with you. And all of a sudden, the party changes. You know, nothing changes the party like being struck dead by God. And so it's all changed. And the Bible says that that place called Perez Uzzah, which means the outbreak of Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. We don't see any fear of David up to this point of God. He's not ready to write some of the Proverbs and some of the Psalms that we know, but, but now he's experiencing God in a deeper way than he had ever anticipated How can the ark of the Lord come to me? I'm not perfect. 
How can it come to me? I'm, I'm, I'm scared. What if something happens to me or someone else? And so he did what a lot of people do. A lot of people who start the journey with God, who start the relationship with Christ, and things are going well, and then, bam, something bad happens, and they leave him. That's what David says. Well, I'm, I'm just going to leave that part of God here, and I'm going to go on. That's exactly what he does. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, this is really amazing. I, I wish we had time to talk more about this, but Obed-Edom, I'm completely fascinated with this character. Uh, from my studies, it's, in all appearance, it seems like he is a Philistine. He's from Gath, okay? It's, where the, it's, a, it's a major Philistine city. So he's a Philistine, and David's leaving it with him. Now, how does David even know him? Well, I don't know if you remember this, but you know, David's 30 at this point, but during the time he's running away from Saul for years and years, he's mainly in the land of the Philistines, and he develops relationships. So it's real possible, and probably what's happened is Obed-Edom connected with David. He heard about Yahweh, and he believes, and he's loyal to David. So here's Obed-Edom, who is a foreigner, and the ark is with the foreigner. That's where it's got left. It's, it's amazing to me how God keeps using people outside of the nation of Israel. We always think, oh, it was the Israelites and everybody else. Everybody else bad, and God didn't help them, and he seemed to wipe them out, and he was just nice to the Israelites. No, God was, has always been open to whoever would come, and Israel was supposed to be a light. They were supposed to be the missionaries to the world, and that's exactly what's happened with Obed-Edom. By the way, this isn't the first time it happened. Remember a little lady named Rahab, a Canaanite? Okay, she was as pagan as they come, and God uses her to save, um, to, to take Jericho, and he blesses her and uses her. Matter of fact, she has a grandson named Obed, who is the grandfather of David, all right? What about Ruth? Ruth the Moabite, she's not an Israelite, and how God uses her. And then we see here, where do we come to? We come right here to Obed-Edom, another one who knows of Yahweh and his greatness, and he must be very reverent. He knows the precious reverence that is required here, even though he's not an Israelite. Because the Bible says this, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. He's immensely blessed and the Bible says, and it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. Before David said, run over there and get that, get that ark. Put it on a cart, whatever you need to, and bring it on over here. But this time, it's handled correctly. The priests prepare themselves. They carry it correctly. And the Bible says after six steps, they stop. And David offers a sacrifice. You see, he had seen God as the God who gives. And he certainly is the God who gives. But he's also the God who receives our worship. This time, David recognizes the holiness of God. And he recognized this isn't just a God I get things from. This is a God who deserves all my praise, all my worship. He deserves my sacrifice. And so he worships. He's matured in his understanding and in his approach to God. And the Bible continues, and it says that 
David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David rejoicing. And when he got there, after he had gone the six steps, he sacrificed the ox and the fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And this, uh, this ephod was uh, traditionally used in worship times. So it would have been appropriate. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So David doesn't go, oh, from now on, we've always got to be serious. He recognizes that there is a holy reverence to the presence of God. There's a holy approach to uh, encountering God. But he's also a God to be celebrated. He's a God to be worshipped. He's a God to rejoice in. He's not just the God of serious uh, and, and keep the law, and you're going to be in trouble if you don't do it. But he's not just the God of, hey, he's the party God. He's fun God. He blesses us. He improves us. But he's holy and mysterious. And sometimes he's going to do things that I can't figure out. Sometimes he's going to act in ways that I can't explain. And again, you know, one of the ways that we know we're worshiping the right God is when we read Scripture and we see things and we don't get it. And it convicts us. And we go, if our God wouldn't do that, then you know you're worshiping, okay? Then you know you're in the right frame of mind. Because if you think, yep, I do that, I do that, I do this, I do that. It's just exact. God's exactly like I think. No, he's not. There's a mystery, just like when we took communion a while ago. You know, that's a time where we stop and we examine our hearts and we confess our sin. And the real truth of it is, uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that some have eaten and drank condemnation upon themselves. He's talking about believers. So many times we get so worried, well, what if somebody's not a Christian and they take it? I'm not too worried about that. That's kind of like, like when the Philistines put the ark in a cart. and took it. God's not so worried about the non-Christian taking communion. I know some of you are, are disturbed right now that I just said it. I'm not saying that you should, but I don't think God's striking them dead uh, for taking the... What he's disturbed by... And what the, the reverence and the holiness of God is more concerned about is those of you who know and you don't take it properly. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is about. It's not dealing with people who are, it's talking with Christians who were taking it in an unworthy manner, who saw it just kind of as the party. They were drinking. Matter of fact, if you go back and read the rest of it, we realize they had probably drank too much. They'd been eating, feasting, and they were just taking it in a very trivial manner. When we come to this time, believers, quit worrying about everybody else. If you're worrying about somebody else, your heart's not right. You're in the wrong place. I don't know if she should be taking it. I don't know. Did their kids get baptized? You're wrong, okay? You grow up, change your approach, and quit worrying about everybody else and make it a time of reverence and worship, okay? I know some of you go, I know you're talking about me because I can't even say that to you. Well, I am. All right, so let's just keep going. Uh, welcome to Rock Point. <laughs> Glad you could be here with us today. Hey, it's, we are responsible for us. You're responsible for your approach to God. Do you see him as Santa Claus? Or do you see him as a militaristic king? Or do you see him for the God that he is? And who is he? We'll go back to the main points we talked about a while ago. First of all, when we worship God, we are to celebrate him. We are to give thanks. But we also focus on the reverence and the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the purity of God. And we embrace the mystery of God. Because God is good, he's holy, he's true, 
and he's mysterious. I've used this example before, but I love in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy finds out for the first time that Aslan actually is, who represents God, is actually a lion. She goes, he's a lion? I didn't know he was a lion. I thought he was a human. And Miss Bree said, well, no, he's a lion. So, well, well, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. That's the picture right there. God is not safe, but he's good. Have you come to that place where you realize that our sin is an affront to him? That he doesn't just wipe it off, but it's only because of the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that we can even approach him? He takes our sin very seriously. But because of his great grace and mercy, he's willing to forgive if we repent of our sins and ask for his forgiveness. Are you just trying to get by on what Jesus has done for you? Or do you recognize that the magnitude of what Jesus has done? Are you taking that seriously? Or are you worshiping yourself? Joe DiMaggio, uh, some of you remember that name. He's one of the greatest baseball players of his era. Uh, when the World War II broke out, he and many athletes went to serve overseas. And when he left, he had a very young son who had just been born and uh, hadn't got a lot of time to spend when he was just several months old when he left. And when Joe came back after the war was over, he came back. And the next day, he was going to report to the New York Yankees, who he played for. But he had one day, and he realized he had never been to a game with his son. His son now, he wanted to spend some time. He thought, I'll never have this experience again. I want to sneak into Yankee Stadium and watch a ball game with my son because I have to report the next day. So he did that. And while he was getting ready, his, his son said, Joe, what are, Dad, what are you doing? And his, the son's name was Joe DiMaggio Jr., he goes, well, son, I, I don't really want people to recognize who I am today because I just want to have time with you. And he goes, Dad, what about me? Everybody will recognize me? He goes, son, I think it'll be okay. And so Joe put on a hat. He put on glasses. He put on a coat. He tried to cover his face the, his, the best he could. And he got through the stadium and entered the stadium without anybody recognizing who he was. But then as he sat down, they got into the first inning. Somebody near him said, hey, I think that's Joe DiMaggio. And they go, hey. You're Joe DiMaggio. You're Joe DiMaggio. And then a crowd of people began to, to, to recognize him. And soon the crowd was going, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Everybody in Yankee Stadium knew it was him. And his son looked up with a big smile on his face. He goes, see there, Dad? I told you everybody knew who I was. <laughs> see, he was too immature to recognize because he had had Everybody knew, knew him in his neighborhood. Everybody knew him in his family. Everybody knew his dad was serving. And they always recognized Joe DiMaggio Jr. in that little, that little sphere right there. But what he didn't realize, it was because of his father. It was only because of his relationship with his father that he would be recognized. And who they really recognized was Joe Sr. In his immature mind, he couldn't, he couldn't perceive that or understand. It was only because of the father that anyone would ever know his name. And it's only because of Jesus Christ that we could ever approach God Almighty. It's only through his death, burial, and resurrection that we have been forgiven and cleansed because of the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf. Just as blood was applied to the offer for the covering of the sins of the nation, so was Jesus' blood applied to our heart. And if it's not applied, then we cannot come before the presence of God. What about you? Have you come to that place where you recognize the seriousness, the magnitude, the mystery, 
the holiness, the righteousness of God, who his presence has been made available because of Jesus, because he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And he said, look, I will cover him. You're Joe Jr. Because of me, come with me and you can approach him because of what I've done for you. But we will do it in reverence. We will do it in celebration. We will do it in worship through me. Have you come to that place where you've recognized that you're a sinner and you can't just come to God any way you like? You won't be able to do enough good deeds to, to atone for your bad deeds and that only because of what Jesus done in your done for you that you could ever be forgiven? Have you put your hope and trust in what Christ has done in Christ alone and invited him to come into your life and to be your Savior and Lord? If not, I want to invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, uh, Lord, for this message, for this story that's hard for us to see. It's hard for us to know how serious you take sin. And though you forgive time and time again, there comes a point to where, Lord, we cross a threshold and, Lord, a rejection of you and rejection of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would see the seriousness of our sin and we would recognize that Jesus is the only way that we can come before God today. Not of our righteousness, not of our deeds, but we do that in sincere humility saying, Lord, I don't deserve it, but because of Jesus, I ask for your grace and forgiveness. Come into my life, Lord. Lead me. Lord, let me serve you in all humility and in love because of what Christ has done. Lord, I recognize your righteousness. I recognize that you are the judge of the universe. And I recognize I deserve hell. But Lord, because of your great grace, I humbly ask as I come the way that you've asked that you would forgive me of my sins and be my Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your great favor. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.